faster, higher, stronger. That's the Olympic motto. Well, I don't know about higher or stronger, but certainly faster is an adjective anyone in racing would want to apply to their horses. But times in the thoroughbred business haven't really improved much in the last half century or so. Have we reached the limits of equine performance? Plus, we don't often detour from thoroughbred racing, but an achievement in the standardbred world recently deserves your attention. We'll introduce you to the only driver to win a thousand races in back-to-back seasons. We'll have all that and a commentary on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It's pretty certain that no horse is going to run the Belmont Stakes faster than Secretariat did in 1973. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. But it might surprise you to know that several current speed records in the sport have lasted a quarter century or more. The fastest seven furlongs on dirt? Set in 1980 at Hollywood Park, and equaled there as well in 1982. Mile and a quarter? the great spectacular bid in 1980 at Santa Anita. And no one's beaten the great Dr. Fager's mile run in the Washington Park Handicap at Arlington in 1968, 50 years ago. Dr. Fager is short lead, racing room in second. Dr. Fager drawing out by four lengths, 100 yards to come, and Dr. Fager is all by himself. Eight, nine, Dr. Fager by about ten lengths. And ladies and gentlemen... May we draw your attention to the running time, the mile in 1.32 in one, which is a new world record. Dr. Fager's time was equaled in 2003 at Belmont Park, but not beaten, so you get the idea. With every mating so carefully considered, and the breed supposedly improving with each passing generation, why have times not improved even incrementally in the last 50 or so years? If you're a buyer listening to this podcast, should you feel like you're being sold a bill of goods by consigners who promise brilliant speed? Well, one man who seems to have a pretty good handle on the situation is University of Texas Associate Professor Paul Von Hippel. He studies data, lots of it, for all kinds of topics, including education and obesity, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at Texas. He's also really good at knowing what data is missing when it comes to gaining the whole picture of a situation. In his spare time, he focuses that data mining energy on examining thoroughbred racing. And that fits perfectly with this show, since horse racing isn't my day job either. Professor Von Hippel writes about thoroughbred performance for the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary website. And we welcome Paul Von Hippel here to In the Gate. You lay out a number of potential theories behind stagnating times in the sport. One of them is that horses might have simply reached their physical limits. How valid is that argument? Well, uh, you know, it's plausible. The thoroughbred breed is very inbred. There hasn't been a lot of new genetic material entering the breed 
for a long time, and there's been certain stallions that have been successful on the track or successful at stud or bred again and again. So genetic diversity is lacking, and horses run so hard, so close to their physical limits, that about one start in a 1,000, they break a leg. So there's some reason, and people who know a lot more about biomechanics and genetics than I do have written about this to think that thoroughbreds may simply have neared their limit. And you can find direct evidence for this by looking at trends in, say, the Triple Crown races, which have each been run for more than 100 years. And what you see is that there's improvement in winning times until, depending on how you fit the curve, until uh, about 1960. And then there's stagnation since then. The winning times in Belmont Stakes, Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes are really not any faster today than they were in 1960. There's another theory that while horses have gotten faster, that the racetracks have gotten slower. What I've never heard that one mm-hmm. before. What do you make of that? Yeah, I haven't seen any hard evidence for that, but there are people who don't like the idea of comparing winning times over time because if you look at speed ratings and the way that they're calculated, for example, there's a track variant, and the idea is that some tracks are, are faster than others, the condition of a track can vary on a, a most obviously on a rainy day versus a dry day, but that there are a lot of other changes that can affect winning times, including how long the horses have to run up, what the surface of the track is like. And so there was a claim, Jerry Brown, for example, claimed that horses had gotten 10 lengths faster since 1990, but it had been uh, offset by the fact that tracks had grown slower. To me, it's a little hard to believe that every track, you know, all three of the tracks that I was talking about before, Pimlico, Churchill Downs, and Belmont Park have all gotten slower at exactly the same amount that horses have gotten faster. But it is a claim that you see out there, and there are concerns about raised about comparing winning times in different eras. But in one sense, it is actually a good comparison because with very few exceptions, those three tracks have hosted those races for all of that time. So at least that variable is out of the experiment. Right, yeah. It's the same track, it's the same location, approximately the same weather. There's a lot that's being held constant when you make these comparisons. On the other hand, there may have been some changes to the surfacing of the track, although the groundskeeper at Churchill Downs said that he hadn't really changed anything since the days of Secretariat. Now, the 800-pound gorilla in the room in comparing stagnating times or not is the drug issue, that horses in the past 30 years have been running on more drugs than horses right now are doing, for example, and that's circumspect, but so be it. Uh, What credence do you give that argument? Well, it's subterranean, right? So there's not a lot of data on it, but there's certainly evidence that horses in the 1980s were using cocaine. There was a prominent trainer who introduced a number of drugs, including Butte and Lasix in the 1960s, and these drugs are more heavily regulated now than they were in the past. It's hard to know whether they're used more routinely. Certainly Lasix has become legal and is used routinely, but other drugs, it's hard to know whether they were being used more in Secretariat's day than they are today. Then there's also the question of painkillers, which is what drove Bill Mack out of uh, writing about horse racing. He was concerned <laughs> that horses were given, being given painkillers that was causing them to run when they really shouldn't, uh, harder than they should be. Uh, that that explained the breakdown of, uh, of horses like Ruffian. We're chatting with University of Texas professor Paul Von Hippel here on In the Gate. Now, when we talk about possible plateauing, reaching physical limits, you write that most North American records at under a mile, the seven furlong one we mentioned notwithstanding, have been set within the last 13 or so years. It's the route races where we see the stagnation. 
So can we say definitively then that horses are bred nowadays in this country more for speed than stamina? I, I don't know if it's an issue of, of breeding, but it's not just in the U.S. and it's not just in elite races. There was a, a much bigger study than I was able to do using U.K. data uh, going back to the 1800s. And it was found that in the U.K. as well, there's near stagnation in recent years, but there is some slow improvement in times and the, there's more improvement in the sprint races than in the longer races. So, yeah, it, it does it does seem like horses may be nearer their physical or genetic or breeding limits in distance races than they are in sprints. And yet, one of the more interesting findings you discovered is in comparing winning times over the years for two well-known stakes races at Belmont Park, one for Phillies and one for Colts, and the same at Churchill Downs. Give us a thumbnail of what you found. Yeah, so this is kind of surprising. In the Belmont Stakes, uh, times have not improved since the 1960s, and Secretariat's record set in 1973 looks just about untouchable. But in the Mother Goose Stakes, which has run on the same track, there's been steady improvement. This is a Phillies race run later in the season, um, and Ruffian set the record in 1975. She was once described when she was a two-year-old as better than Secretariat, and yet her record was broken in 1978, and it's been broken again several times since then. The fastest time in the Mother Goose Stakes during the period when it was set at one and eight miles was in the last year that it was run at that distance in 2009. The record said it was Rachel Alexandra. Her march to greatness continues. Rachel Alexandra wins ease. Again, a huge margin. It was almost 20 lengths again. The time was 1.46 and one-fifth seconds, and that's a new stakes record. And you look at the Kentucky Oaks, which is run the day before the Kentucky Derby on the very same track, and you see a similar story. There's been steady improvement since 1980 in the Kentucky Oaks, but not in the Kentucky Derby. So it makes you wonder about some of these explanations because Phillies come from the same gene pool as Colts, of course, and in this case, they run on the same tracks. So what do we make of that? It's not clear that when I published these results, there was some pushback because the sample size was so limited and the issue of comparing winning times at the different eras, which people seemed seemed more comfortable about in, in the context of one story, was questioned. But uh, there's a larger data set involving British horses that I'm going to take a look at a little later. I'm going to see if the, if the same thing is happening. It may be that the training of fillies is improving faster than the training for Colt, but I don't really know. I don't actually don't have a particular point about Colt versus fillies. But I do think that the trend for Phillies pokes some holes in the arguments that are made about Colts. Well, certainly, Phillies race pretty hard against Colts, more so in Europe than they do here, and they win against mm-hmm. Colts more often than they do here. I wonder if there's a correlation to be made there. Now, though it's not a state-of-the-art technology anymore, a data provider like Trackus can give a researcher like you info on length of stride, etc., what kind of data like that has proven useful to you, and what have you learned from it? Well, so uh, one thing, not, not Trackus, but a competing provider, Total Performance Data, is now collecting data from transmitters in horses' saddle cloths, which allow you to assess the length of horses' strides, which is something that there's kind of a lot of mythology about, but it's not something that we've ever had really detailed data on before. So I've been looking at the lengths of horses' strides and comparing them to the lengths of stride that's claimed for legendary horses like Secretariat. Uh, one of the things that I found is that the uh, length of stride 
that Secretariat is alleged to have had, and there's very limited information on Secretariat. We have a few videos of him. We have one veterinarian that took him down the track and, and looked at his hoof prints and how far apart they were in the sands. We don't have a ton of data, but the uh, stride length that was claimed for Secretariat was 27 or 28 feet. Uh, and it turns out that that's long, but it's not unique. There are other horses that have strides of that length. And so that may tell you something about trends in performance over time as well. Supposedly, Man of War had a 28-foot stride as well. Obviously, that'll be a little harder to document. Uh, so what yeah. should our audience take away from the analysis of winning time data that you've culled together? Well, there are different uh, points of view on this topic. It's not settled, but I don't think we're all that far apart. So there are some folks who say there's been absolute stagnation and horses are no better and, in fact, maybe worse today than they were 50 years ago. And other folks will say that there's been slight improvement in horses' speed, especially at younger lengths, but it's not dramatic improvement, and the rate of improvement has really slowed down over the last 50 years. People are kind of shocked by the idea that horses' haven't, horses speeds haven't improved in the last 50 years because we're used to records being broken for human speed. But there's a fascinating TED Talk by David Epstein, the sports journalist, where he's looking at whether human speed has really improved as much as we think it has. Um, and he points out that uh, Usain Bolt, for example, ran the 100 yards or the 100 meters uh, considerably faster than Jesse Owens ran the 100 meters in 1936. Um, but then he breaks down the reason that it turns out the almost all the reason has to do with changes in technology. Usain Bolt has better shoes. He's using uh, starting blocks instead of digging divots in a cinder track, and he's not running on a cinder track. He's running on a carpet that's optimized for speed. And when Epstein subtracts all those differences, what he concludes is that Jesse Owens, if he ran in the 2016 Olympics, would have been just a stride behind Usain Bolt. So people haven't improved as much as we think we have. I wonder what that'll mean for breeders and auctions going forward when you're trying to sell hope and improvement I have to let you in on a little secret then, Professor. Mm -hmm. This is a very status quo industry. They're not going to want to <laughs> hear that. That's not a secret. <laughs> well, this is nonetheless a very eye-opening data set, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barry. We don't often divert from thoroughbred racing to discuss its kissing cousin, standardbred racing. But when we come back here on In The Gate, we'll share with you one of the most remarkable achievements ever in that sport. Don't go away. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. This is a thoroughbred racing podcast, to be sure. But every once in a while, when something really noteworthy happens in a related equine sport, it's worth sharing that with you. And we have such an occasion to do that right now. It comes from the world of harness racing, where a driver, that's the term used in place of jockey since he or she rides in the bike behind the horse, a driver named Aaron Merriman pulled off a feat never seen before in the sport in this country. Moving around that final turn and the leader is Zumba. Aaron Merriman trying to get his thousandth win of the season. He leads him out there by a length and a half. Oh, you shady thing is there in second. Love over gold is on the outside advancing. And with the lead, it's Zumba. Zumba maintains them by two. It is going to be Zumba. Aaron Merriman going to do it. The first driver in history to achieve thousand wins in multiple seasons. Congratulations, Aaron, from all of us at Northfield Park and Harness fans everywhere. That's right. 
back-to-back thousand-win seasons. What makes that more amazing is that only three other drivers in the history of the sport accomplished the feat even once, the most recent coming in 2007. To pull it off, Merriman rides both during the day at the Meadows outside Pittsburgh and then at night at Northfield Park in eastern Ohio. I don't know of any thoroughbred jockeys who pull double duty like that almost every day. It's amazing that Aaron Merriman could actually take 10 minutes to chat with us. I figured that to get him, we might have to put a mic on him during a race. I mean, maybe you remember the way we here at ESPN mic'd Boston Red Sox outfielder and eventual 2018 American League MVP Mookie Betts while he was playing in a spring training game last year. Here he is in right field talking to our announcers as the Cubs' Chris Bryant hits a triple over Betts' head. You can't. Uh oh. There you go. I ain't getting this one, boys. <laughs> Get on your horse. Don't miss the cutoff. So, Mookie, on that ball, you saw immediately wind is going that way, ball is tailing, I've got no chance. Yeah, that's why uh, you just know. I would have expected us to have to do the same thing with Aaron Merriman, but incredibly, we found him in a stationary position. And we welcome standard bread driver Aaron Merriman here to win the gate. Has the accomplishment of back-to-back thousand-win seasons sunken in yet for you? Well, yeah, a little bit now. Um, you know, give me the numbers of it, you know, and, you know, the number of different horses I went with and uh, the number of trainers and, you know, what trainer I went for the most and, you know, the amount of dead heat and, you know, maybe, you know, post-race disqualifications and post-race getting moved up. So after, you know, you think it down and you boil down the number and all the different trainers and stuff like that, I think 360 different horses and 200 and something odd different trainers are involved in that. So, yeah, when you start thinking of the numbers, you really maybe look at it differently. Now, you've ridden for 22 years, but for much of the last eight years, you've done double duty at the Meadows and at Northfield Park. What went into the decision to run such a demanding schedule? You know, it wasn't just really the demanding schedule at the time. Um, when I first started doing it, I actually always trained a small stable for years, and they just always had a couple. You know, and the purses weren't great in Ohio, and, you know, Pennsylvania's just getting a little bit better. So I thought to myself, instead of being a trainer, which it's hard to be a driver trainer, I think, nowadays, and just being a trainer in general, I think, you know, maybe you've got to, it's very demanding in itself, and I just didn't think I could put everything towards, you know, you need to doing both. So I said to myself, hey, Meadows is two hours away. You know, maybe I can start getting some drives over there. Um, you know, I've had some success, you know, in Ohio and, you know, and beyond. So I said, hey, if I'm there every day, you know, quality driver being there, I think that, you know, people would like it. So, you know, it worked out and uh, it's been a great place for me. It's been a second home. So um, I really, really appreciate the people there. And like I said, I, it's something I love. How much of a toll does that schedule take? Uh, you, I don't think you could believe it. It's uh, it, it's really getting to me a little bit now. And it's not the horses. I could drive horses all day, 24 hours a day. I mean, it's something that I love to do. Um, the people are great. The animals, you know, the equine athletes, you know, just like you like thoroughbreds, they're, the, the durability and, you know, I mean, this, the camaraderie you even get with the animals is unbelievable. But um, the, the road is definitely catching up. You know, it's, it's just the time on the road and, and just the everyday wear and tear on me. Well, I mean, for those in our audience who mainly follow thoroughbred racing, they can understand the physical toll of riding on the back of a 1,200-pound animal running at 40 miles an hour. What kind of physical toll does it take to ride in a standard bred race? I mean, you know, you're sitting in a race bike, you know, in a, in a whatever position you're comfortable. You know, I mean, everybody kind of rides a little bit different, sits a little bit different. But 
I mean, you're getting pulled on and, you know what I mean? And sometimes hit from behind with the horse, you know, their knees or the, you know, the horse's head, you know, hitting on your helmet, you know, neck issues, back issues, you know, you know, the, there are accidents, you know, I've had some pretty bad ones where you did concussions and, you know, many broken bones, surgeries, you know, it, it can, it definitely takes a toll on you. You know, we don't have to be as small as the jockeys, which kind of helps, you know, I'm like 5'11", you know, like 190. So I, I kind of live other than that pretty normal. You know, my son's 15, my daughter's four, so they keep me active when I see them. You know, my son wants to play basketball and sports like so I get to do that. But, you know, just as jockeys will tell you, and, you know, nothing's easy, you know, and, and I know them guys are usually small, you know what I mean? But they got to put a lot of work in, you know, and I, and I respect what they do and I'm sure they respect what we do. Well, none of that is as difficult as raising a teenager. I can commiserate with that part of your life. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to learn. And guess what? My dad always told me there's no book on parenting. My mom kind of like laughs. You know, I, I've got three sisters, and I'm a brother. She's like, oh. she's like, just think you're easy, and he's a boy, you know. And she's like, oh, just imagine what it was with me and your three sisters, you know, which I, I remember. It wasn't easy. We are chatting with harness racing driver Aaron Merriman. He just completed the second of back-to-back thousand-win seasons, an unprecedented feat in that sport. He has more than 10,000 wins overall. Now, in stick-and-ball sports, when it comes to the popular sports argument of which players belong in their respective halls of fame and which don't, you often hear the criticism, he's just a compiler when it comes to statistics. Uh, a compiler would be someone who doesn't necessarily dominate his or her sport, but nonetheless has a long career and runs up lots of juicy stats to merit consideration. Fred McGriff in baseball comes to mind. Maybe John Stallworth in football. In thoroughbred racing, that would be Russell Bays, the all-time leader in thoroughbred wins by a jockey, but among those are just five grade one wins. Five. So for you, let's face it, the Meadows and Northfield Park are not exactly the sport's biggest stages. How do you feel about not participating on the so-called Grand Circuit and not competing that often in harness racing's biggest events? You know, I you know I have, and, and you know this year um, I I won numerous you know Grand Circuit races this year. Uh, I don't go around and follow them around, and there's really not a lot of room for um, other guys. I mean, you got a guy Brett Miller who went out there, very very successful. He's coming back to Ohio. And not only, because, I mean, not for nothing, compile or not, to drive that many horses and to not turn down, it, and I will say this, anybody can drive a good horse. I will tell you that, and any rider will tell you the same thing. I'm sure Mike Smith says it's a great horse. I'm, I'm blessed to go drive it. Let me tell you right now, the drivers will say the same thing. I'm very, very happy with my location. I've had numerous opportunities over the years to move out east where I was asked by trainers, and actually a racetrack that goes for the most money that, the general managers asked me three years straight to go out there and try to change the racing. And I will, I won't have, I don't even mention names. I'm sure people can say it. I'm at another half mile track. Um, I was third in personally this year. You know, maybe I had to start 13 or 14 or more starts in the, the next guy, but my UDRS is near 390. There's not a guy in the top 10 with that UDRS that high. You know what I mean? And I don't believe in all that mumbo jumbo. I'll just be honest with you. I race the best especially when you're harness race, you get an opportunity to race with the, you know, quote unquote best drivers. And absolutely. Yeah, there's some drivers that think they're great, but I did not put anything down. I, I drive with the winningest driver in the country, you know, the world every single day in Dave Pallone. And once you ask the guys that are leading drivers in the country, they all raced there at one time. That was their home. Dave Pallone beat them all. So, I mean, that's why I said, it just goes to show <laughs> it's, it's, it's anybody can drive a good horse. That's, that's just a fact. 
Speaking of racing, I read that you got quite a few tickets racing from the Meadows to Northfield Park. How rushed a schedule do you have on a daily basis? It can be rushed. Um, some of it's my scheduling because I want to drive the you know, latest as possible at the Meadows. You know, if I have a nice horse race and the earliest possible at Northfield. Um, I try to leave myself 25 to 30 minutes in between, but, you know, being around the Pittsburgh area and things, you know, sometimes traffic can be bad. Um, and sometimes you're in a little bit of rush, but I've never had a ticket where I went 20 miles an hour over. So I've never had an excessive speeding ticket. It was always 10 or 11 miles over in a 70. It's more or less bad luck, in my opinion, because they're that petty. <laughs> Give me one, but they see me all the time. So I've had plenty. I've had way too many, and I've had my license suspended a couple of times as well. <laughs> well, I remember being in downtown Pittsburgh with my colleague, Kenny Main. We were interviewing the race car owner, Chip Ganassi, and we were going way too long and weren't going to get to the airport in time until Chip Ganassi said, hop in the back of my 560-class Mercedes, and he went so <laughs> fast through the streets of downtown and through the tunnel and out to the airport that I had to duck down in the back because I couldn't even look, and no cop oh was anywhere near us. I don't understand. That's, yeah, that's good luck. <laughs> how much longer do you think you can keep up this kind of a schedule? I don't know how much longer. It's something I just, like I you know, I've always tell people, I'm, I really don't even, I don't even look at the stats, you know what I mean, until the end of the year. Um, I just kind of got to go day by day. Um, tomorrow I'm doing the Meadows and, and Miami Valley. I, I'm just going to kind of go how I feel. You know, when you're winning races and you're doing good and, and people count on me, and, and that's the biggest thing with me. Like, you know, that's another thing. Like, you know, you say not being at the sports elite, you know what I mean, or maybe it's not saying I'm at the sports elite. I don't compete at in the bigger races, you know, on a consistent basis. That's, I think that's the best way to describe it. But you know what? The people that I drive for, I will say this, need me a lot more than the millionaires that are buying those Grand Circuit horses and those drivers. I mean, and that's the way I kind of go. People count on me. They put me down, and I'm going to do it as long as I can do. Be really, really good at it. I'm going to try to, you know, be there for everybody that, you know, me that count on me. And maybe one day that teenage son who cares not a lick about his parents will say, wow, you know, my dad was really good. Yeah, he does not like horse racing. <laughs> Like, but just not nothing. Um, he sat, he seen me sit at home a couple of times, you know, being severely injured. So it's not something that's on his uh, forefront. But he, he know, understands how hard I work, and he's very, very good about it. Like, we're here at Costa. Right now, we went to lunch today. You know, I mean, just it's just a normal day, you know, whenever I can. And I go home every day, and I, you know, wake up to him every day, and it's, it's, it's a nice feeling. And that's another thing, that, you know, you don't have to worry about that at the Grand Circuit when you're gone all summer long. I, I'm close enough to home. You know what I mean? I, I still want to be a family and, and a good father as well. So I think it is the place where I live is everything kind of moves it together. And I think it's a great, great life. Well, some of us who understand how hard you work, wish you continued success in the future. And thank you so much for sharing a few minutes with us, sir. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Our thanks once again to Aaron Merriman and to Paul Von Hippel. Most of us probably know that glamour photos are airbrushed somewhat. Some features are hidden while others are enhanced. Well, the folks at Santa Anita tried to do the same in racing when they sent out their new calendar in advance. It seemed that the photos with jockeys heroically riding to victory were conspicuously not holding their riding crops. A graphic designer had airbrushed them out for fear of public perception, but people who knew those pictures just sat up and stopped. Sometimes horse racing people have been accused of being tone deaf, not hearing what their customers would cry. Sometimes they've been too sensitive, like when they're accused by PETA of cruel treatment, the whip being one reason why. 
To be fair, Tim Ritvo of Santa Anita apologized for the photos for altering reality too much. The whip issue is growing in sensitivity these days, more weighty than giving a glamour shot a retouch. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.